0: Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 64 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. The complicated reality of power, influence, and prestige is a daily conversation from church scandals to behind the scenes in Hollywood to the political arena. Jesus was familiar with that complicated reality, addressing it directly as his inner circle of disciples competed against one another for the top spots in his kingdom. All right, guys, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, We've spent the last couple months uh, going through a a couple different series, so we've taken a hiatus from Matthew, but now we're going to be back in Matthew for a couple of weeks before our next series. Um, So uh, back in the fall of 2017, uh, I took my first uh, church leadership class at seminary. Uh, I had been working at that point at Van City for almost two years, and then before that I had been like a high school pastor for a few years, but this was like my first formal class at aiming to build a paradigm for how to lead a church. And this particular class was focused on how to lead a church like as an organization. Uh, So it borrowed a lot from the corporate world and the roles and methodologies of CEOs, and they were kind of held up to me as good examples of how to lead a church, you know, like, be like them but you know, Jesus y and learn from what they've done and, you know, apply it to a church context. A- and it felt uh, it felt a little ill fitting. I mean, um, we're not a large corporation at Van City. I mean I would say we're more like a hip like tech startup. I mean, I don't know. Maybe not. Just kidding. Um, whatever we are, though, we are certainly not a mega corporation. So in this class uh, that I was kind of like, I don't know if this really fits our context, I was assigned to read a book by a, like a wildly successful mega church pastor with multi-site campuses and tens of thousands of people showing up on a Sunday morning. And he had been doing it for like three or four decades really successfully. He consulted with other churches about leadership issues and structures. He even headed up a global uh, leadership training organization that was super popular. So, you know, like why not use his book for the class? Um, The book was called uh, like uh, Leadership Axiom, Powerful Leadership Proverbs. Um, And it was essentially like dozens of short personal anecdotes about situations that he had been in and leadership principles that uh, the reader could draw out from them. So uh, after the class was finished, I I read the book, I wrote my report for it, I got an A in the class, thank you very much. And three months, it was a miracle by the Lord Jesus. no, uh, three months later, after the class had concluded, it, it actually came out that uh, this like megachurch pastor had been engaging in sexual misconduct with and harassment towards women in his church and on his staff for decades. And he eventually resigned as more and more allegations came to light that he had wielded his power to obtain sexual gratification from those below him. And for a lot of you, uh, you hear that story and a sort of like cynicism arises uh, within you. Uh, You know, it's kind of a story that has come to light time and time again. You know, fill in the blank, like famous uh, type A megachurch pastor isn't what he appears to be and is abusing his power and influence for his own gratification or ego or financial gain or all of the above. So maybe, you know, the CEO type A pastor blueprint isn't exactly what Jesus had in mind for his church. Um, You know, and from what I can tell, it does seem like that blueprint is very slowly dying out. And it's being replaced by uh, this, like, cool influencer pastor you know, a, a manicured lifestyle plastered all over social media portraying the pastor as not only holy, but, but hip as well. You know, it's like, hey, I'm cool for the kingdom sort of pastor. Um, and, and, and really, like, it's like, wow, those are my options. Um, really, though, uh, <laughs> this sort of confusion about, like, uh, about and abuse of power and influence and prestige within the church isn't new. Um, It's a common thread for 2,000 years of church history. Read a couple of letters to churches in the New Testament written just a couple of decades after Jesus' death. It's an issue even then. It's an issue for church leaders and it's an issue for those not leading a church. At its core, this is a human problem. One that you can trace back to Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden. And it's even an issue that that bubbles up to the surface with Jesus's inner circle, the first 12 disciples. And Jesus, like he tends to do, stirs controversy as he addresses what power, influence, and prestige looks like in his kingdom. So, uh, with all of that in mind, let's look down, let's dive into the scriptures, look down with me at verse one of Matthew chapter 20, and let's start reading together. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse one. You guys ready? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Four, and stop right there. So, uh, okay, so we need to remember what's just happened in the story in order to, you like that, somebody caught that late a little bit, yeah. Um, We need to stop right here uh, to kind of figure out what's going on and what's just happened in the story in order to better understand what's about to happen. Again, it's been a couple months since we've been in Matthew. So the last time that we were in Matthew, a rich young ruler approached Jesus asking about how to enter the kingdom of heaven. That exchange like ended when Jesus told the man to sell all. All he had and, and to follow him, and the young man was unwilling to do so. So here's what's really uh, what really concerns us tonight. Though uh, Jesus went on to say in chapter 19, verse 23. So just look up a little bit to chapter 19, verse 23. Jesus said, "Truly, I tell you," speaking to his disciples. It is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter enters stage right. Peter answered him, we've left everything to follow you, what then will there be for us? So Peter asks this question that seems uh, pretty self-serving on the surface. Well, I mean, that rich young ruler didn't give up his stuff but we have, what about us? What are we going to get out of all of this? And Jesus answers this loaded question with some encouraging stuff. Uh, they will receive much more than they give up, and and, and, close dis- and the close disciples who are following uh, Jesus will have significant roles in the kingdom of God, and that's great. And then Jesus ends all of that with this saying, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And this could initially be received as good news for the disciples following Jesus. They are not the cream of the crop. Quite the opposite, actually. Uh, They, uh, who are not highly regarded in their communities or society, yet are now moved to the front of the line in the kingdom of God. But Jesus' intent is for this pithy little saying to be a double-edged sword for the disciples. How so? Well, let's uh, read tonight's text, and we'll see. Look down with me again at verse 1 of chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. So Jesus tells a parable. And remember from way back in chapter 13, uh, what a parable is. Uh, I love this definition from scholar Stanley Hauerwas. He defines a parable as an extended metaphors or comparisons designed to draw the hearer into a new awareness of reality as revealed by Jesus. Yet their artful nature adds a special twist of paradox and unexpected challenge. We'll see the special twist of the paradox and the unexpected challenge for our parable tonight in just a moment, but let me explain a bit of the parable that would have been obvious to the disciples as they listened to Jesus tell it. So what Jesus initially describes in this parable is actually a really common situation. Day laborers were not employees, but hired daily as the work required. And so the landowner goes into town and hires the workers he needs for the day. The payment of a denarius was uh, the standard daily wage for a day laborer, so the two parties, uh, the landowner and the workers, uh, agree to the payment of of a denarius, they think it's fair, and so they all head off to start the work day. So far so good, nothing out of the ordinary here. But we all know Jesus, so let's keep reading in verse three. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. And right here, the disciples listening to Jesus would have begun to sense something a little bit strange in the story. So the landowner goes back into the town three hours into the workday and hires more workers. Uh, Generally speaking, you wanna hire enough workers the first time around. Well, I mean, maybe the landowner miscalculated the number of workers he actually needed, so let's keep reading. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, that is like one hour before the workday is over, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing around here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. So the story gets a bit more strange. So as far as we can tell, this would have appeared to have been an absurdly foolish and uncalculating landowner, at least on the surface to the disciples. But kind of a layer beneath the surface though, you can see compassion. Day laborers had no job guarantees or job security. You could be hired one day and not hired the next, and if you did not work that day, there's a great chance your family would not eat. So we can see compassion and generosity bubbling up from the landowner. Economically, this makes no sense. But it certainly reveals to us something about the landowner. So let's keep reading. Verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day." So here's the special twist to the parable. Imagine these workers all lining up to receive their pay. Some have been there 12 hours, all the way to those that just showed up an hour ago. And the ones who have worked an hour receive a full day's wage. An extre- that, that's an extremely uh, generous gesture from the landowner. And, and for the dudes who work 12 hours, they're probably thinking, oh my gosh, the hourly rate is going to be a denarius an hour. We are going to get 12 days wages out of this. This is amazing. But in the end, they only receive a denarius as well. And put yourself in their shoes. If a coworker showed up an hour a day, working the same position as you, and received the same pay, that would probably frustrate you quite a bit. Jesus wants the disciples to relate to the workers who feel ripped off. He wants them to feel for the workers, and then he wants to give the disciples an unexpected challenge, so keep reading in verse 13. But, the landowner answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, Friend, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The landowner gently confronts the grumbling uh, workers and and calls it out for what it is, a, a problem with his generosity. The generous, uh, compassionate landowner is, of course, God. And by design, the 12 disciples are the workers who are first hired in the morning. And here's the unexpected challenge to the disciples. God's generosity. Uh, To quote our very own elder, Scott Barguerite, He says, uh, God will never be less than fair to us, but his propensity is to be more than fair. Let me say that again. God will never be less than fair to us, but his propensity is to be more than fair. The landowner is not less than fair with the workers who were hired first. They agreed to their, their daily wage. He honored that commitment. He is fair to them, but he is more than fair with all the workers hired after them. And Jesus tells this story to warn the disciples and, and Peter, who asked that question back in chapter 19. Yes, they have given up everything. They are the ones walking along with him, the Messiah. He, they're his inner circle. You know, that pithy saying, you know, the last will be first and the first will be last is, a good, is good news to this motley crew of misfits. But now Jesus is warning them, saying, hey, you guys are now the first. You guys are at the front of the line now. You guys are the ones that are now at risk of being made last. And the very thing that threatens the disciples' positions as firsts is God's compassion and generosity. So did the disciples get the point? Uh, I love Matthew, who uh, is quite skilled as a literary writer. Uh, He actually doesn't say one way or the other, but let's keep reading, and it will become, I think, a bit more clear to us. Verse 17 Let's read, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem on the way he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. This is the third and final warning Jesus gives his disciples about what's going to take place. It's a warning that ends on an encouraging note. You know, he will be raised back to life. Um, and, and it should help shape the disciples' expectations, not only about what's going to happen, but about the type of Messiah Jesus is. Again, Matthew leaves the, silent, uh, uh, the disciples silent in response, or at least appears to. But uh, let's keep reading. Again, verse 20 Then, notice that word, uh, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to the brothers. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Um, okay, so this is, this is supposed to be an embarrassing story. Um, and I just have to note that, <laughs> that Matthew seems to have gone a bit out of his ways Uh, out of his way to embarrass uh, John and James, the Zebedee brothers. Um, Not only does he have this request uh, connecting immediately after Jesus' third prediction of death, you know, not great timing on their part, uh, but Matthew also includes a key detail that Mark actually leaves out of this story in his own biography. um, The fact that the request was made by their mom. Embarrassing, yes. Uh, whether this request was the idea of the mom or by James and John, uh, uh, we don't know. But the brothers certainly weren't opposed to it. I mean, to be on a ruler's right and left were, were to be in the highest positions of favor and honor and authority. And this, this wasn't just a great position for the brothers to be in. Their entire family, even extended family, would benefit from having brothers in that position. Even their hometown of Capernaum would benefit as they would be associated with these now powerful and, and prestigious brothers. And, and these brothers would be assumed to become benefactors of their extended family and community at large. And that might seem kind of bizarre to us um, to want to kind of sit in uh, positions of power at, at, uh, with a king, um, but it really honestly shouldn't. We just have to kind of translate it into kind of modern terminology or modern ideas for ourselves. Um, so by a show of hands um, and be honest with yourself, who has kind of like daydreamed before about winning the lottery? Most people, if you haven't, I think that means you're like some sort of like mentally healthy person well adjusted <laughs> I don't know um, but uh, okay, that's great okay, and then you've daydreamed about this most of most of us have um, and then you generally wanna talk to somebody about it, right? You're like, oh, this is what I would do, whether it's a friend or a coworker or a spouse or whoever, you know, like, I I know I have, you know, I would pay off all of my family's mortgages and set up a college fund for my kids and and my nieces and nephews, and of course, you know, tithe to the church. Um, and, And that sort of, you know, power to do that sort of stuff is attractive, at least in some ways. Now, what comes with that is the idea of, now you're an influential person, people know that you're wealthy and that you have power, and maybe whether you want to have that influence or not, it's there now. So the mom makes this loaded request. I want my sons to sit in these positions of power and prestige and influence. And Jesus turns to the young men and asks them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Uh, this metaphor of a cup is a play on an Old Testament motif of God's punishment against evil and oppression and sin. It generally carried with it a connotation that the oppressor or the evildoer would have the tables turned on them and would suffer, in, uh, would suffer instead of being the one causing the suffering. So like their, their sin or their evil, their oppression would actually blow back on themselves. So more on why Jesus is going to drink this cup in a minute. James and John uh, to this question reply very confidently, actually a single word in the Greek, uh, perhaps kind of akin to us saying absolutely, which is um, absurd. Uh, Again, Stanley Hauerwas says this of the brothers. I love this. This is the same James and John that Jesus will take with him to Gethsemane where Jesus himself will pray and ask the Father to let the cup pass from him. James and John's declaration that they are able to bear the cup that Jesus must drink is clearly revealed as bravado. They can't even stay awake with Jesus in Gethsemane. And Jesus predicts that they will drink from this cup of suffering that he will experience, that he will drink from, meaning they will suffer in a similar vein to Jesus. And now we know that James was executed by the government a handful of years or perhaps a decade into the life of the church, and John suffered persecution and exile as a follower of Jesus. But while this request uh, reveals ignorance and is uh, really ill-timed, the other 10 disciples aren't much better. Look down at verse 24 to see how they respond. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So the other 10 are ticked off that James and John asked to be on the right and the left of Jesus, You know, to, to have the highest positions of prestige, honor, and authority. Uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this about the disciples' response. When the other disciples are cross with them, it's probably not because they were all too pure-minded to have similar thoughts, but simply because James and John got in first. James and John and the other ten disciples clearly did not understand the parable and did not soak in the prediction of Jesus' death. They are still squabbling about who will be first in his kingdom and upset if somebody else gets to the place before they do. So Jesus, as the rabbi or or teacher of the 12, calls them together for an important and candid teaching moment. So look down with me at verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus doesn't take them to task. In fact, he recognizes their behavior as very much human. Just look at the political authorities of the world. They exercise authority and power over others. Not so with you. Or another way you could translate that to hear the emphasis in the words could be, it must not be this way among you. Power influence, prestige can't operate in the same way it does everywhere everywhere else in humanity. Jesus' ethic for all of this is instead to flip it on its head. Instead of yearning for power and influence over other people, a follower of Jesus finds their power in the paradoxical position of serving or being below others. So please don't miss this. Jesus is 100% redefining what greatness, power, and prestige is in his kingdom. And it's based on his own methodology. The king of the universe came to serve and to be the payment that would set us free from the power of sin and death. He isn't stuffed away in a palace somewhere with his entourage at his beck and call to meet his every need. Instead, he emptied himself of his power as God. He fully took our nature as humans. He walked in the dust of Palestine. He listened to the insults against him by the religious leaders. He has been followed by crowds always wanting something from him, teaching or healing or even food. He gets tired and exhausted. He gets hot and he gets sweaty in the heat. He grieves, he weeps, he gets frustrated, and he dies. Jesus does not live a glamorous life and doesn't strive to. For us tonight uh, at Van City, the challenge uh, by Jesus has been spoken over us. Will we allow him to actually redefine what we consider power and influence and prestige? you know, to, to be the, the first. It's easy to nod along with Jesus to hear his words, you know, the, the last will be first and the first will be last and assume it's good news for me and for you. And in some ways, uh, it is for, for all of us. You know, once we were far from God, even enemies of God, the scriptures say, but now we are adopted into his family. We are loved sons and daughters from first to last. But I think we often assume ourselves uh, to be last when we hear Jesus's pithy little saying. And it reminds me of this well-documented, bizarre phenomenon um, where rich people don't think that they're rich. There's been tons of surveys on this, and one just done a few months ago um, found that out of 700 people uh, surveyed who are millionaires, only 13% considered themselves wealthy, 60% considered themselves upper middle class, and 25% considered themselves just straight up middle class. Uh, Yeah, it's ridiculous. So clearly somebody making like 20 to 30 times more than us, or at least most of us, um, should be considered wealthy. You know, I'm probably, I would guess I'm probably lower middle class. Or maybe I'm like upper lower middle class. I'm not sure how many times you can like add on to that, but I'm somewhere in there. But then consider this. If you make... Uh, over $32,400 a year, you are among the top 1% of wage earners in the world. In that context, a ton of us who consider ourselves last are now the first, and I think that that sort of mentality often shapes the way we hear Jesus's words. We assume that we're the last. Until we get kind of a broader context and then we're like, oh, actually, maybe, maybe this informs us a little bit better. So then it begs the question, who is a first or a last, according to Jesus? Are you? Which one are you? That seems to be kind of the questions that the church has had difficulty answering at times. You know, according to my leadership class at seminary, it seems like, you know, the type A CEO mega church pastor is towards the front of the line, you know, among the first. Um, Or maybe it's a social media influencer, you know, the cool for the sake of the kingdom pastor in the front of the line. They, They seem to have power and influence and prestige, For you, I mean, that's obviously pretty specific to my context. Uh, Most of you don't work for a church. uh, But maybe for you, it looks like having a really, really interesting career that people find fascinating. Or maybe it's just having a lot of money. So, you know, whatever gets you that, that's where you're going to go for Or maybe it's a version of the hip social media influencer who has a really good follower to following ratio. Because we all know likes are going by the wayside. You know, it's all about the follower to following ratio. Have you guys heard about that? That's for another week. Um, (laughs) For you as a follower of Jesus, what ideal of power, influence, and prestige do you gravitate towards? And perhaps you're thinking, I don't care about any of that. Honestly, I just want to live my quiet life. I'm not trying to rule over anyone or anything like that. That's probably true to a certain extent. I don't think there's anybody here trying to become like the dictator of the world. And if there is, remember me in your kingdom. Um, (laughs) but uh, this paradigm isn't just about being rich or, or famous. Um, you know, A husband may argue and mani- uh, maneuver and manipulate in order to have power over his wife. Uh, someone uh, may act generously towards their friends, but really only so that they can have greater influence and control over those friendships. It could show up in the workaholic who is chasing career accomplishment after career accomplishment. This is a human problem. For myself, as I mentioned, I go to seminary, and uh, honestly, the idea of like uh, considering myself as being educated, and you know having that piece of paper that they give you at the end of school, but only after they force you to pay tens of thousands. Of- tens of thousands of dollars oh this it hurts um, but that's kind of not the money part but but the piece of paper you know the being educated that's what i that 's what I tend to gravitate towards there's something in me that is drawn to the idea of considering myself educated and having that piece of paper on my wall that proves it I like the idea of the kinds of doors that it could open you know the sorts of people I could meet and influence or be influenced by maybe I could write a book and the three Bible nerds that would read it would think I was smart. Or maybe I could even develop a niche expertise and have this sort of like side hustle doing conferences for, for those three Bible nerds that are into my stuff. And I know uh, it's really exciting, my hopes and dreams for my life. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and maybe, maybe that's, that's stuff that Jesus will actually ask me to do in some shape or form. Um, I don't know. Um, but I do know that I, if I do end up doing that sort of stuff, greatness in the kingdom won't come from it. It'll probably more likely come uh, to come from something like serving my wife and my daughters as a husband and father. Uh, Far more often, you know, something like far more often saying yes to my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Posey, than no when she asks me for the tenth time in a day, Dada, do you want to play with me? Trust me, it is exhausting to be Elsa or Anna all day long. I just want to be me. (laughs) Or it could look like really listening to my wife and being attentive and interested enough to ask her good, probing questions. No piece of paper on my wall for any of that stuff, no books written or conferences, no grand position of power or influence or prestige. Jesus said, to be great, you have to be a servant. To be first, a slave. Jesus used some of the lowest positions in society to make a point. The world's estimation of power, influence, and prestige is way off. In fact, it's the opposite of how it's supposed to be. Elevate others while you lower yourself. Serve others ahead of your own self-interests and ambitions. Don't strive for power over others. Strive instead to have the same position of power Jesus had. Power from serving people. Sounds great, right? Maybe some of you are like yes, some of you are like absolutely not. (laughs) That's okay, Jesus is working on all of us. If you're a note taker, uh, here's some practical steps you could do in order to help take Jesus' redefinition of power and influence and prestige seriously. First, ask yourself how you define those currently. Uh, Maybe it's a bit ambiguous, and that's okay. Just kind of jot down some uh, ideals that you gravitate towards, or even people who seem to encapsulate your ideal of power and influence and prestige. And and then the second thing would be uh, to think through whether your ideals line up with this idea of lowering yourself and serving. Maybe it doesn't at all, honestly. Or maybe it's a mixed bag. And then finally, last thing is just the stuff that doesn't line up. Invite the spirit of Jesus to speak over you about it and allow him to remove those ideals and replace them with his own. It's it's pretty simple and straightforward. And and just a heads up, um, your ideals won't probably be transformed in one sitting, um, but uh, really, over time, as you continue to take seriously Jesus' redefinition, you have to re- reexamine yourself as seasons of life change. I, I think going from uh, one kid to two kids has, has done that for me. I feel like um, it's kind of shaken me to my core of like, oh man, how do I invest myself into now another human being when it feels like life is already so busy? How do I uh, carve out of my own time that I had like gotten into a good rhythm and routine of having? How do I now sacrifice that in order to invest in my daughters and my wife even more? It's just something that you have to keep revisiting as seasons of life change, and just a reminder, uh, just a. Uh, Remember this, um, as you're working through this, as you're uh, confronting maybe things that just aren't in line with Jesus' ideals for power and prestige and influence, God is always fair to us. He's never less than fair, and his propensity is to be more than fair. He's generous and compassionate, loving and self-sacrificial. We can entrust our lives to him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.